My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. Tonight, I'm excited to say we have an Apache pilot in the studio to tell us his story about 2007 in Iraq. It's CW4 Dan McClinton, U.S. Army retired. He's a 24-year veteran, master Army aviator, age 64 pilot, and command and air missions commander. Dan retired from the U.S. Army in 2011, having deployed three times in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom for a total of 37 months in combat. He's a recipient of multiple awards and decorations to include the Legion of Merit, Bronze Star, and the Air Medal. His aviation-themed photography has been featured in numerous books, publications, and on the Department of Defense website. He's the producer of the documentary, The Longest Month, which covers the events surrounding the deployment of 1227 Aviation 1st Air Cav Brigade, 1st Cavalry Division in 2006-2007. He currently lives in Dallas-Fort Worth, and he's in the studio with us tonight. Welcome, Dan. Thanks. Uh, nice to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Uh, and this movie that you put out is absolutely fantastic. And, and what I like so much about it is we see a lot of war movies. We see a lot of documentaries, but there's not a lot of aviation documentaries. Uh, and especially in the way that you did this, because you covered not only the pilots and the missions, you covered the ground crews, you covered the crew chiefs, you covered kind of everybody that was in support of you guys, which makes it to me a completely different kind of documentary. Is that the way that you wanted to approach this uh, project? Yeah. Yeah, when we were talking, uh, when I was talking to Ken uh, Christensen, who's the filmmaker, um, we wanted to include everybody that we could get because, you know, so often I think these things are from a single perspective. And, uh, you know, everybody knows, like, when you're talking about aviators, the pilots, you can talk to a pilot all day long and they're, they're perfectly fine with talking about themselves and about the things that they've done. But we wanted to make sure that, you know, the people that are behind the scenes that normally don't get any uh, credit uh, kind of got their stories told. And uh, we wanted to make sure that people understood, you know, what our driving uh, force was every day out there was to take care of that guy on the ground that everything that we did was for that person on the ground. Well, it's interesting that you say that to take care of that person on the ground. And this movie, as we talked about before, to me is broken down into a couple of vignettes, but I, I heard something interesting uh, about your father and you talking. And uh, he said, when you were a kid, uh, you were watching the Audie Murphy story and uh, you said how great it was that he got pinned with those medals. And your dad said, for every one Audie Murphy, there's 10 more that you'll never hear about. And you said when you were a kid, you didn't understand that. And as you got older and you kind of took command and you saw in the Army that that was absolutely true. 
Can you speak to that a little bit about how you looked at command, how you looked at being a pilot and how you looked at just being in the army differently when you kind of learned that? Well, when you say command, I was in command of an aircraft. I was a warrant officer, so I was never really actually in command. But uh, I think, you know, in relation to that, that statement, um, I think you don't really appreciate what my dad said until you go to combat and you see, and it's not necessarily people wanting to like screw somebody out of an award or something. It's just the way the system is people, a lot of people that deserve something don't necessarily get what they deserve and, or just things happen and people aren't a prop properly recognized for the things that they did that there's heroes out there doing stuff every day that they'll never get the recognition probably that they deserve and uh it becomes really apparent you know when you're out there doing business you know you see people put everything on the line you know and when they come back you know some of it's our own fault like when you fill out a sworn statement and you just put down the bare bones words like I went to this place and we saw bad guys and you know we we shot at them and then we came home and it's not the whole story of of what was going on which is part of the reason why I wanted to make this film because there's a lot of stories and I want to say also that you know in case somebody gets the idea like th my unit was not unique that you could take these stories and you could probably plug in names from almost any other aviation unit in the army. I would say this is typical. This is not something that's, uh, unusual. Now going back to your youth, was this always, because I ask almost everybody that comes on the show, was this always in your mind that you wanted to do this? You wanted to be an aviator, uh, wanted to be in the military or did it come later on in life? How, how did you come to that conclusion of coming into the military? Well, there's a, there's a picture of me that I share on Facebook and whatnot that my, I think my grandparents took. Uh, and I want to say I was like four or five years old and I'm wearing like an army uniform with a cla uh, plastic helmet on my head. And as far as flying, um, we were growing up in Waco. We were kind of in the flight path of the airport. And I remember going out in the backyard, you know, just running out there to see planes landing. And the fairgrounds up the street had some old Air Force fighter planes in the, you know, sitting out there on display. And <clears throat> I remember checking out books from the library, everything that I could get my hands on about airplanes, made models, uh, drew airplanes. I was in civil air patrol. I was in, when I started college, I was in air force ROTC because I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And, uh, that was like right after the F 16 was fielded. And I thought that was the coolest plane ever. I still think it's pretty cool. Um, then I went to college and I liked doing a lot of other things rather than study. And so that air force, thing kind of went away and I became, I actually got a degree in drafting. 
Uh, I was a draftsman for a while working at a military uh, uh, contractor up here in Dallas-Fort Worth. And one day I'm sitting at my drawing board and I go, you know, this I can't see myself doing this eight hours a day for the rest of my life. And went down to the Army recruiter because I knew from a neighbor growing up that you didn't have to have a college degree to fly in the Army. Um, so I went down there and told them I wanted to go to flight school and probably took about a year to do all the paperwork and all the stuff that you got to do. But I didn't realize till later, you know, that I was pretty lucky because I didn't do any of the pre-study guide, use any of the pre-study guides that are available out there. And I just took the test cold and passed them and got into flight school. And, uh, that was 1987. So for the first 10 years of my career, I flew UH-1s, Hueys, and I was a maintenance test pilot. And uh, then about that time, they were phasing the UH-1 out of the inventory, and I ended up being an Apache pilot, and that was 96. And so after that, the rest is pretty much history. Well, so that's the two airframes that you were on was the UH-1 and the Apache. Um, right. with your father being a world war two vet, was there like talk about the military growing up? Was it uh, something that I won't say expected? Cause I don't think it was expected, but was there, was it, uh, really spoke of highly in the house? I guess I should say. Well, you know, believe it or not. Well, my dad was drafted and so was my brother. Cause my brother's 12 years older than me. So he was in the Vietnam generation and he got drafted. He, didn't, he ended up not going to Vietnam. He went to Germany cause he got drafted at the end of Vietnam. Um, I remember distinctly hearing my dad say more than a few times that he thought everybody should serve at one time or another. And, um, there was never any pressure on me to go in the military, but, um, it was looked up, it was looked upon as something honorable, something that people should do. So I found out later cause my parents weren't real, you know, they're the, like, like we said, they were the world war two generation. They weren't real vocal about, you know, praise or anything like that. It was just, you know, right. steady. And I found out later, you know, it's funny the things you find out like after they're gone, because like neighbors, when I'm at the funeral for my dad are coming up and telling me like how proud he was and all this other stuff. So that was kind of, it was nice to hear. Yeah. And, and the reason I asked that about the family, because you're right, the, the praise isn't that big and stuff. And those guys were pretty much quiet about what they did and, and didn't talk about World War II a lot, but you I always look at that generation as being very patriotic, loving this country very much, being able to, uh, feeling the need to stand up for it, rationing during the war, you know, doing whatever it took to, to keep our country together. Um, and so that was kind of the question of behind it. Now, um, a, as you move through and you go in and you become a pilot and you, um, you know, you go to the UH-1 and, and going from the UH-1 to the Apache is quite a, I would think it's a change. Now, I've never been a pilot, so I don't know, you know, the difference, but but it seems like a completely different 
you know, mission set, all those different kinds of things. Was that something that you wanted or was there other aircraft that you wanted to look at before that? Or were you always kind of shooting for that? Well, to be honest, you know, when I went to flight school, I wanted to be a Cobra pilot and things just didn't work out that way. Cause I, I always thought the Cobra was like a cool looking helicopter. And, uh, in 87, the Apache was just first being fielded. And there's a saying in aviation, don't ever, don't ever fly the A model of anything. Um, I ended up flying a model Apaches, but that's after they kind of worked all the bugs out of them and everything, but like anything that, and it is quite a change going from, cause, uh, a Huey UH one was designed in the fifties. So then you go to an Apache, which was designed in the seventies and flown in the eighties up to, up to now. And it's, it's evolved over time. Cause like I said, I started out with an A model and then switching over to a D model, which is all digital and it's got a glass cockpit. That was, that was a change too. So you're right. Um, going from a Huey to an Apache is, is quite a change. And like, I don't know if you've ever heard of the bag phase and, uh, when you get trained in Apaches, but I'm sure everybody's seen, you know, the, the sensors on the Apache, the FLIR and all that stuff, but they have, um, you have a monocle that sits over your right eye that you use to fly with and to train you how to fly, fly that way. They seal you up in the back seat in this bag. They basically cover up all the windows so you can't see out. And your only way to see out is using this monocle. So that's called the bag phase. And that's probably the hardest thing I've done flying ever. Uh, I went through that phase in February in Alabama and it was normally like 40, you know, 40, 50 degrees at the most. And I'd come out of that cockpit like sweating because it was just, you know, it was probably more mentally hard than anything else, but it's something that I had to really work at. Uh, more than anything that I'd done to that point flying. And by that time I'd been flying like 10, 12 years. And, and something that'll come up quite often, you know, human beings are creatures of habit. So you get used to flying one type of aircraft and doing things uh, that way. Now the controls all, you know, the concept of the controls work the same but everything else is different. Like where this particular gauge is at is, is in a different place that you have to learn, you know, where to look for. So it's, it's a challenge. Um, I'm still here. So I guess I did it. Okay. <laughs> well, if you would, cause that kind of brings us into the next thing. Can you kind of break down an Apache for us? Cause like you said, the, the Cobra was around, you wanted to do that. That one was kind of phased out the Apache. Can you give people who may not know, now I don't know anybody who hasn't heard of them or anything. Can you give them kind of a breakdown of, of how the setup is on it? Uh, what the purpose of the Apache is and then what it's kind of bread and butter is. Okay. It's a, it's the Apache is an attack helicopter. Uh, it was designed in the seventies, uh, for the cold war, full the gap Russians bringing their tanks, you know, going to take over Europe. 
And so all these Apaches were going to go out there and just kill tanks right and left. That's what it was designed for, is to be a tank killer. So if you look at a picture of an Apache, you'll see like there's rocket pods on the outside on the little stub wings. And on the inside, uh, there's Hellfire racks. So the aircraft can conceivably carry 16, but normally it's configured to carry eight Hellfires. And that's a, that's a missile that can fly out quite a distance and kill a tank or just about any wheeled or tracked vehicle. And um, that's basically what it was designed for. Now, when we went into Iraq, you know, I'm sure everybody, a lot of people have seen like in the first Gulf War uh, video of them just going out there and, you know, destroying the Republican Guard. And uh, it did an awesome job. As, as a matter of fact, the Apache in the first Gulf War, uh, they used it following a PAVELO, which is an Air, was an Air Force Special Operations helicopter. Uh, to fly in and to destroy an Iraqi uh, radar site to open the way for the stealth fighters and all the other fighters on day one. Um, so in Gulf War One, the Apache did an awesome job, uh, went out there, did everything they wanted from it. Um, but the thing we didn't quite grasp is we weren't the only ones looking at those videos, like, uh, the Iraqis were, uh, all our future enemies or people who might, uh, differ with us in the world. were looking at it and they learned from it. So fast forward 2003, uh, when we go into Iraq, um, they launched, uh, I want to say they launched three battalions on night on I don't know what night it was, but because uh, I wasn't over there, I was in Korea for the opening of the war. Um, ba they basically went into uh, Iraq looking for the Republican Guard again, and they got shot to pieces. Um, and that's where all of us in the attack aviation community went to school, and we had to reinvent ourselves about the way we were going to do business. Um, because we didn't change tactics. The enemy learned from the way we, we employed the aircraft the previous time and they made us pay the price. So after that time, we kind of changed the way we did business and were more dynamic and we're out there. Uh, when it, all three of my Iraq deployments, the aircraft was used more as a close air support, um, Kind of nine one one, especially in the time frame that we're talking about in the film, we were more of like a nine one one asset. In that, uh, when you'd come in and get a mission briefing, they would give you the S three operations would give us a stack of papers, you know, probably an inch high, like saying, "Okay, at this time, do this, go over here, cover this convoy, cover this uh, core search, do this, do that." Uh, I can't think of a single time that we got through the whole mission and didn't like throw those papers away and like just react to what was going on out there. Uh, all three times my unit was in the Baghdad AO. So 
is kind of unique in that regard in that Baghdad's a city about the physical size of uh, Phoenix. And you're dealing with troops moving through the city, uh, encountering bad guys, getting in a firefight. Then we have to respond to that. Or they hit an IED and we respond to that and secure the scene and get a medevac in there. Um, so we just did basically whatever whatever we had to do, whatever the ground guy was asking us to do to help them out. And that, that became our mission. There weren't any tanks over there. So that aircraft, even though it was designed to be a tank killer, we're now flying this aircraft around doing whatever we need to do to support the guys on the ground. Well, a couple of the things that you said, one to support the guys on the ground, there's, there's a couple of points that this film uh, kind of states over and over again. One, it's supporting the troops on the ground. They talk about that a lot in there and doing whatever it takes to kind of support those troops. Um, number two, about the enemy, and, and this is said multiple times throughout the movie, uh, they adapted and improvised so much. They would watch and learn what you were doing on a mission, and then they would try to exploit that on another mission. Um, that's why your pilots talk about in the movie, never trying to go the same route to test the guns, never trying to, to fly the same routes, always kind of switching things up. When, when you go over there, how fast is that transition of where they're watching you, they're able to adapt? I mean, are we talking uh, weeks, months, uh, that, that they're able to improvise? Because... Like I said, in the movie, the pilots that are talking about it are really stressing that point about how fast this enemy was learning. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to say um, because I was the, uh, and we didn't discuss this, but I was the tactical operations officer which uh, for the battalion, which meant I'm partially responsible for coming up with tactics and briefing crews about how the enemy is going about their business, trying to shoot us down stuff like that. So it was my job every day to analyze what was going on around the AO and try and figure out, you know, uh, what they were doing or what we're doing and how we need to change it to keep from getting shot down. Um, and something interesting, and this isn't me who just discovered it. I mean, every, I mean, everybody, anybody who looks at trends over there, find out, found out that uh, about eighty percent of the shoot downs all over Iraq, and I can't really speak to Afghanistan, but Iraq, about eighty percent of the shoot downs was due to pattern setting. Okay. And hum human beings are creatures of habit. And if even though we're preaching every day, don't don't set a pattern. Uh, it's really easy to take the quote easy way out and just do the same thing. You know, we all have patterns. Uh, unless you consciously take steps to avoid them, we all set patterns. And so that's why we would talk about it all the time. And even though we talked about it, people would still go out there and like, say, say if you were on the eight to noon mission slot, and this is another thing I haven't touched on yet. We had to have a team up in the air, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, weather permitting. 
So the day was broken into four-hour blocks, and a team of two would take off every four hours. And usually they overlapped some because by some strange reason, just about the time your mission was coming to an end, you'd always get involved in some kind of like a firefight or, or something. It always seemed to go like five hours instead of four. But we're scheduled for four. Um, so say you took off at eight in the morning every day, you got to avoid like going out to the same place at 8 a.m. to do like a test fire or something because that's that's how one of our guys got shot down. And I don't honestly, I can't tell you how many times they went out there in a row before the bad guys figured it out. But we knew from intelligence after other aircraft got shot down in units before us that people were always watching because they said they would find like a pile of uh, cigarette butts like nearby where a missile, a rocket was fired from. So we knew that there were people out there watching. You just didn't know, you know, where they were or how many times you could get away with something. You just have to assume I didn't want to do it more than twice, but you know, there were people who did it just because that's the, we're all human beings and sometimes people take the the easy way because, you know, I don't, you know, they're feeling tired that morning or something, you know, uh, everybody, I'm not going to blame anybody for going out and doing the same thing like three times, but, uh, we would try to, we would try our best not to, but it happened. So let's let's talk and kind of start breaking down the movie. So the first one that I want to talk about is uh, January 28th. Now, Daya Kadim uh, built a fortified compound. He had followers. Uh, he had about 200 fighters and then about 200 uh, conscripts. They were called the Soldiers of Heaven. Um, I, Iraqi Army and Iraqi police uh, go into a compound. They immediately fall under fire. A Special Forces ODA unit tries to respond to it, and then uh, two of your aircraft are launched for this. Uh, you have, and I want to make sure I get their names right, uh, CW2 Jake Gaston, uh, CW4 Johnny Judd, uh, CW3 Cornell Chow, and then Captain Mark Resch. They're taking off for this mission. As they come into it, though, they immediately fall under fire as they're coming in. And if you could kind of walk us through what happens here, because um, this is how the movie opens up. I mean, this is like the first kind of vignette of what's going on over there for the longest month. If you can, just kind of walk us through this, and I'll, I'll put in questions as I see them. Okay. So those guys were with 4th Battalion. That was our sister unit over there. So first cab at that time had two attack battalions. It had one, two, two, seven, which is the unit that I was in and fourth battalion, which they were in. So they were responsible for that area down by Anna Joff, which was south of Baghdad, quite some distance actually. Um, so those guys got a, um, troops in contact call and they hauled butt down there, uh, you know, once again, they're focused on we got to do whatever we got to do to help these guys out. Um, so the way I liken what happened to those guys is kind of like the ants at the picnic scenario. Like 
they go in and they see a gun truck and they're, uh, you know, trying to reduce the amount of fire that's being directed towards the ODA. So they immediately spot this uh, pickup truck with a gun in the back and they roll in on it. Well, as soon as they, uh, and there was some miscommunications, uh, so they had to pull off dry off that attack and um, they immediately got lit up because this is where the ants in the picnic thing is like, if you've ever been at a picnic and you see one ant, like you start looking around and there's now hundreds of them. So they were in the middle of a bunch of bad guys and they didn't, they didn't quite see it at first. They just were fixated on this one target. So they got lit up. Chow and Rush uh, roll in to suppress, to help lead because lead was getting lit up. Uh, so when they roll in to suppress, that aircraft gets absolutely hammered and they get shot down. And that starts the whole, that's called a fallen angel when a friendly aircraft gets shot down. So that starts the whole, uh, okay, at that time, nobody knew that those two guys were deceased. We're just trying to isolate that aircraft and take care of the crew. So everything in theater is headed that way to take care of that fallen angel. And that, that starts the sequence of events where uh, multiple teams go down there. Um, I end up going down there with, with the team that I was flying on. We were actually doing something uh, in Salmon Pak. We were supporting a ground unit that was doing a cordon and search, which is a real bad guy territory. And we got pushed from there down to Ana Joff. So, I was the third team in, like, um, Johnson, and I don't know who else was on that team, uh, came in to relieve uh, Johnny Judd and uh, – Johnny uh, Johnny Judd and Jake Gaston. And Jake, yeah. So that other aircraft, that team was on station. We got pushed down there uh, with my team. Um and as soon as we rolled in there, my front seater, Jay Hunt, he saw <laughs> it's like 40 guys lined up on this uh, berm. Um, and it's his first time to ever engage anything in combat. So he's just almost kind of stuttering because he's so surprised to see all this. Because it's not normal. Like up, up in Baghdad, you know, we'd see like one or two guys, you know, when you get in a troops in contact, you'd see at the most like a group of 10 or something. And they, as soon as they heard most, more often than not, when they'd hear the helicopters come in, they'd scatter to the winds, you know, because how many times are you going to watch your buddy get, you know, blown to pieces before you, you know, as we said all the time, the, we killed off all the stupid ones. What was left was the smart guys. So there's like these 40 dudes lined up on this, this berm and we roll in and I'm, I'm briefing him. I said, Hey, be prepared. You know, it, you know, when you shoot and it starts hitting, they're probably going to scatter, but he fired and, uh, they just stayed there. And, um, it turns out later they'd shot themselves up with atropine. So, we found out that through the SF dudes after they uh, did, they rolled through there after the battle was over and did an intel, you know, collection effort. So it was just, it was a one-off 
um, just sort of weird heaven's gate, you know, kind of suicide cult. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how they describe it in the movie is a suicide <laughs> cult. Another, another couple things about this story that were crazy to me was as you guys roll in and you're getting updates from your front seater, uh, it keeps going and it goes from five personnel that he sees to, they say 500. And then as you're kind of setting in your sights and your guns and everything, an F-16 that was above you guys drops a bomb on them. And you had no idea that the F-16 was even above you guys. Um, and when it drops and blows up, the, the actual chatter inside your cockpit is uh, something just blew up down there. I don't, I don't know what it was. And you guys are talking back and forth. A big thing that you guys pointed out in this was there was lots of assets, but no one was talking to each other. And a lot of people that we that I talk to on this show say that that happens a lot when when the heat is kind of coming on and there's a lot of stuff going on, but not necessarily that's where we kind of fault is we're not talking to each other. Yeah, and I think part of that was our fault because um, being Fred at that time, I think we'd been in theater like a couple of months. And like I said, Jay was kind of new, so I don't really fault him. And I, to be honest, I was a staff guy and I wasn't flying every day. So I probably wasn't as on top of things as I should have been. I could have had the JTACs freak up. Uh, the JTAC is the Air Force guy who was controlling the air. And I'm sure he was talking, he was talking to that uh, F-16 on, on his freak. Um, you know, maybe my flight lead didn't relay to it because they were doing all the comms. I was, I was gunned to, um, but you're right. You know, that in the heat of, you know, it's even though, uh, we had like 30 minutes to get down there, it's like time starts compressing. It's, it's like frantic, you know, when you get there. I, we were on station down there. We were on station long enough to have to go to the FARP and come back twice. So I, we were down there like four hours and it just went by like the blink of an eye. Um, so don't know what you only know what you know, you know, and, and the aircraft, you know, the, the, our unit wants us to be on certain frequencies because they have a need to know, you know, they're trying to drag information out of us. Sometimes they're, and this isn't really discussed in the movie, but like I, we could probably do an hour on this, but sometimes they, their need for information is actually a distraction because they're, uh, this is kind of unique. Uh, well, I've never been on the ground over there, so I, I think it's unique, but, um, this team with four guys go out in two helicopters and we're basically our acting on our own. You know, we get guidance from our chain of command, but once I check in, say with a ground maneuver brigade, I'm working for them. And so whatever decisions we make, like if I was the air mission commander, I'm making decisions for those two aircraft. Now we do call back to our higher our battalion and say, okay, we're in this sector doing this work for these guys. And sometimes when, 
when they know that we're getting ready to shoot something, they're they're getting kind of antsy because you know the colonel's career's on the line if we shoot the wrong guys. But uh, so that's probably you know sort of what's driving that need for information because they want to assure themselves that we're doing what needs to be done. But I basically got four radios in that aircraft. And so if I'm having to tune in my battalion, it limits, you know, what I can do with ground radios or talking to, you know, other aircraft and stuff like that. So we have to manage, manage the radios between the team. So, because, because, so between the team, I got eight radios. So sometimes the guy in the, in flight leads monitoring another net that I'm not on. So then the onus on sharing information goes to flight lead, like sharing it with trail. And, you know, sometimes things get busy and it just doesn't get passed. So, and, and I'm sure you heard me on the, on the tape. I go, well, that would have been nice to know. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It looks a lot, it looks a lot closer than it was because the, the video it is, looks the gun, super is close. the site that zoomed in. You know, I wasn't like, getting shrapnel hitting the aircraft or anything but uh yeah it did sort of surprise me so let me ask you then when when you talk about the battalions need to know on their information and and you talk about all the different radios that are in you know uh, between the two there's eight radios with people's need to know and and of course that's going to take priority on their need to know because like you said they're saying their career is on the line did you ever, if you can speak about it, see that become a problem where it was more of a hindrance than anything? To be honest, if it got to the point where it was it was getting into, we call it getting into my cockpit, we wouldn't talk to them. I mean... I was a W four then. Like, what do you what are you gonna do uh, if I don't talk to you on the radio? You're gonna give me a bad OER and I retire. Uh, I mean, obviously, different people make different decisions based on where they are, or you know, you know, everybody's different. Uh, but for the most part, I would say the teams when they went out there, if it got so. You know, if, if the talk calling us up asking for information was so intrusive, people would tell them to stand by. And I, and I can tell you that for a fact, because I had to look at almost all the gun tapes that came through because that was another part of my job. Uh, so if somebody was like, you know, you're trying to do your business and somebody's like on the radio trying to talk to you, they were just like, hey, stand by, I will get to you when I, when I can. Did you so, see that happen? Uh, I don't. I don't think it's intentional, you know, because they, the people on the radio on the other end, they don't have a, you know, a hundred percent idea of what's going on. They, they know, you know, because there will be times out there where we're circling around for twenty minutes waiting for clearance of fires because you know you got to talk to the, the ground commander and and hey, is it okay? Are these legit bad guys, you know, because nobody wants to kill somebody that doesn't deserve it. So, you know, because there were times out there where we've seen kids 
these are the kind of bastards we were up against. There were kid, they would give kids toy guns just to get you guys to focus on them and hope that we would shoot them. I'm sure. But you know, we saw in time that it was a toy. It wasn't an actual gun. And to be honest, like, I don't know about other people, but we didn't just open up on guys just because they were carrying a gun. There had to be, you know, a, a sequence of events there. But, uh, um, what was the question again? <laughs> we, we were talking about, uh, it, it becoming a, a hindrance to you, but even more than, than a hindrance to you, like you said, talking about, uh, people trying to be in the cockpit with you. Um, I, I want you to kind of express how much it takes to run these aircraft, because just on this mission alone, um, you know, with everything that was going on, they were uh, a wounded aircraft. You know, they'd been hit. Um, they stick around. Uh, they end up uh, the uh, aircraft crashes. Um, but guys on the ground spend however long trying to get to them just to recover them. Um, with you guys having to watch that from the air, I, I, what I'm trying to put all together is with the talk talking to you and with guys on the ground that are in contact talking to you and guys that are trying to move to the guys where that were shot down. There's a lot going on. How do you keep all of that in its position where it needs to be? Because it's got to bother you looking at a burning aircraft as you're flying over it. Um. I don't know. It's like compartmentalized. You know, as soon as you hear Fallen Angel, you know, by that point, that was my second tour. So I had seen, you know, IEDs going off and helpless to do anything about it and all sorts of mayhem and destruction. So I think it would have been a lot harder if I actually knew those guys when I was down there. And you could tell when we, if you talk about the, what happened on the 2nd of February, that event that comes later, you know, when you watch those guys talk about it, that actually knew them, you can see that. And, and that's why actually the chain of command tried to get, get them out of there as fast as they could, because, you know, your emotions are taken over and you're not, you know, you're not being logical and you're not focused on doing what needs to be done. You're thinking about your friend. Well, um, and I'm glad that you bring that up because that's the next thing that I wanted to talk about. Um, th this vignette is called bad guys wanted a piece of us. Um, and what it tries to illustrate in it is the same thing that we talked about adapting and improvising, but, with the surface-to-air missiles, they were getting very good at shooting down aircraft with the surface-to-air. Uh, January 7th, there was a, a aircraft shot down. Uh, there was Right in that area, there was a lot of aircraft shot down and uh, or damaged. Uh, pilots had bounties on their heads, like actual bounties on their heads from guys that were on the ground. Uh, trying to change the flight patterns that we talked about. But February 2nd is the next thing that happens. And um, once again, we've got two aircraft going out, taking fire almost immediately, except this one was kind of 
confusing at first when you look at it because it was a triangle ambush for the aircraft. Right. And so if you can walk us through this one and, and as the same, you know, we'll just kind of put in where we hear things. So on the 2nd of February, it was a team from 1227, first attack. Uh, uh, Keith Yoakum and Jason DeFriend were in uh, trail. And they're the actual crew that uh, loses their life in this mission. But it's a team of two that go out. And like every day, because if the aircraft, every day when you take off, you got to go test fire. Because if the aircraft, if the weapon system can't function correctly, you, you're you pretty much useless out in the AO. Um, so we had uh, too many instances going out and not test firing and finding out, you know, you have a gun fail, like right when you're about to engage or something. So we decided that we're just going to test fire. Um, OIF2, when we test fired, we just picked a spot that didn't, you know, there was nobody around for, you know, a mile or so, you know, just out in the middle of nowhere and just shoot. Um, I think, there was some complaints or, or something. So we had to come up with designated areas, uh, that had been cleared through the local government for us to shoot. So there were a couple of places that we could go and, um, and it wasn't just this team. Like a lot, I think on the 28th, I went out and shot test fired at the place where these guys went this morning. So those guys went out there and, uh, as you said, there was a triangle shaped ambush and it's, it's interesting. They probably learned that from reading stuff about the Vietnam war, because that's something the North Vietnamese used to do or the Viet Cong used to do is set up a triangle shaped ambush or a square with uh, machine guns at the points of the, the triangle or at the points of the, the square. And they wait, and in this case, they waited till trail got in the middle of that triangle and shot at him. And uh, Keith and Jason's aircraft got hit. Um, he lost utility hydraulic pressure. And uh, in the Apache, there's two hydraulic systems. There's a primary and there's a utility. Uh, so Keith was a maintenance test pilot. So he went through the systems, and uh, if you go strictly by the checklist, it says, you know, land as soon as possible, I believe. It's been 10 or so years since I've flown an Apache, so Apache pilots out there don't... We'll, yeah, we'll, the we'll forgive you, yeah. <laughs> um, he made the decision that we're going to get these guys. I'm not going to land right now. I can still operate this aircraft and, uh, and shoot up the bad guys. So I'm going to cover, he's going to cover lead and he could still engage with rockets because they will be in fixed mode. So he bumped up and, uh, they went to engage the bad guys. And when lead pulls off, uh, of his gun run, he's looking for trail and he can't find him. And he's calling for him on the radio and then there's there's no answer. And they look over uh, back 
towards the way they'd come from and they see smoke coming up and they go over there and sure enough, the aircraft's on the ground burning. Um, unbeknownst to Keith and Jason, uh, that when they got hit in the Utah utility hydraulics, it started a fire in the aft avionics bay. And basically it melted the tail boom off the aircraft. And there's no sensor back there to tell you that the aircraft's on fire or anything like that. Um, they didn't know what was happening until it was too late. Um, go ahead. What, what I wanted to ask you was, can you explain, because you, you talked about they only had rockets, no guns. They were going to do trail. Uh, but when you only have rockets, you have to do a certain flight um, in order to engage those rockets. Is that correct? Yeah. He, he uh, what we call a, did a bump. Uh, that's where you, you climb in altitude and he was going to do diving, you know, like if you ever see a picture of uh, Cobras in Vietnam, it's the way they shot in Vietnam. So you dive down and it actually makes the rockets more accurate. Um, so he bumped up and I don't, nobody knows uh, if that put the stress on the tail and snapped it off. I don't, I don't know, but uh that's about the time that they lost the aircraft. And so when all this happens, they lose the aircraft. Um, of course, we're calling out again, fallen angel again. And we're talking what, uh, like nine days later, eight days, nine days later, uh, from the January 28th. Uh, I'm sorry. What, what was it? Four days. Yeah. Four, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Four days uh, later. So you're calling this out now in your career. Have you, have you ever seen this? Because they, like I said, they, they specifically talk in the documentary a lot about that. It was getting bad that they were starting to shoot down a lot of aircraft. Had you ever seen it like this? No, it was, I never saw anything to confirm my suspicions, but I, I always thought like when I was there in 2004 that I was waiting for them to make their minds up to, I mean, them being the bad guys to come after us, you know, because everything over there revolved around helicopters. You know, the Blackhawks would shuttle people around all over the place, medevac us, there's helicopters all the time and to, and it doesn't mean that we're more important than anybody else, but if a helicopter got shot down, it's on the news. I guarantee you if they, you know, Black Hawk down, I mean, we left Somalia because a helicopter got shot down and they drugged the pilots to the street. Uh, you know, they learned, you think, you know, I thought it was just a matter of time before they, decided to concentrate their efforts towards us because, um, yeah, like it or not, if they'd start shooting down a bunch of helicopters, that's going to be on the news every night. And there's going to be people, uh, back home that say we need to leave. Now uh, you're, you're finding even on this, in this whole time frame you're finding that there even there's missiles coming from uh, Iran, right? Um, within yeah. like within like a year's time frame, uh, they're getting missiles from Iran. 
So you're starting to see this, I don't want to say little group, but you're starting to see this terrorist organization start to get a real backing and start to get real momentum. How do you address that as one, as, as a pilot? And how do you address it as an, especially as an attack pilot, because they're going to come after you uh, quickly because you're going to put the most damage on them. Yeah. Well, there's, from a tactics side of things, you just have to look at the way they're going about it and how we're going to react. So we talked about, hey, if you're in the ambush, you've got to, you've got to break the ambush, you know, and get away from there. Collect yourselves. If you've been hit, like look over your aircraft. If not, then you figure out a way to re-engage. As far as like where it was coming from, you know, Iraq was uh, kind of a weird, weird place at that time because there was not only was there like a Al Qaeda kind of presence, there was sectarian violence. Like there were, you know, we used to joke around and call it hot Iraqi on Iraqi action, but there, you know, Sunni and Sheena were going at one another. So, you know, you got the guys in Sadr city fighting the people on the, on the West side. (laughs) And so you, you never knew whether, you know, some of the rounds were directed at you or you're just getting the collateral from the Iraqis, like shooting at one another. Um, so from a self-protection point of view, we just looked at the way we did business and like I said, try not to set patterns and, and then talked about what we're going to do if they execute these ambushes and how we're going to get out of the ambush. Um, the rest of the stuff, we're sort of at the mercy of our mission set, like whatever the ground unit needs, that's what I'm going to do. So I don't really have a say in who I'm going to go after. It's whoever's bothering our guys is who we're going to go after or whoever I find doing bad things. That's who we're going to go after. Well, and some of the things where you talk about new, new kind of ideas to use out in the field during the ambushes, uh, a couple of the pilots talked about where if, if they took fire coming in, they would actually fall back to a position get online with each other and look to see if there was any damage on the aircraft back and forth with each other, just to make sure before they start their gun runs. Um, Once again, that kind of gives, you know, legitimacy to these guys are learning what we're doing. Did that ever become a problem? Because after you see that a couple times that they're going to fall back, they're going to check the aircraft, then they're going to start making their gun runs. Did you ever see a time where they knew, okay, they're going to be gone for this amount of time. We can set up and do this. Did you ever see where they adapted to those kind of things? Well, that, you know, what we're talking about there, you only really, you're kind of skipping forward to the gun truck thing, but, um, we're, we're going to talk about that. So do you want to yeah. wait? Yeah, that, that, that's no, I, that's cool. Um, I would say people only broke contact if they thought they'd been hit. And believe me, you know, when the aircraft gets hit, cause it sounds like somebody banging on it with a hammer. Um, 
I mean, I say that I landed once and found one bullet hole and I never knew that I'd been hit, but, uh, generally you, we only, you know, disengaged, fell back, looked each other over. If you thought that the aircraft had been hit, otherwise, once you gain contact, you want to maintain it until you either kill them or like they run away and you can't, you know, they go into some place where you can't get to them. Um, so we would do our best to try and seem to be random, you know, for just for the reason that you're saying, because if you do some things the same way every time, yeah, they'll, they'll eventually figure it out. They're not stupid, uh, which I'm sure you heard said multiple times. Um, yes. Um, that was always my fear is like if you do things, keep doing things the same way, they're going to catch on and you're going to pay the price because uh, we saw it happen enough uh, as it was. So it was a constant mantra in, in the briefings and everything about maintaining, doing things randomly, try to change. We change altitudes, uh, go high, go low, uh, change formations, just anything to appear different. So there's a kind of a break in the movie. It felt like a break to me where you, you talk less about the aircraft and missions that they were on. And you start talking about the, the crews, the crew chiefs, the guys on the ground, the armament guys, all that kind of stuff. And it builds to another story where of course the, the air units come back and stuff like that. But let's talk about your crew chiefs and your ground crew for a while, because I think that was what we talked about in the beginning I think that was a big point of the movie was to show that it's not just us out here. It takes an entire group to make this mission work. So if you can, can you talk about your crew chiefs and the guys that were getting you ready on the ground? Because there were at points in this film where these guys were working like constantly um, where they, they would stay after because of stuff that was going on and just going kind of going above and beyond. So, this particular deployment, we were over there for 15 months. So each company, there's three flight companies in a battalion. Each company has eight helicopters. So every day, you know, cause if you remember previously, I said, we have to have uh, aircraft up 24, seven, 365. Um, so every day, each company has to launch two missions. So you've got, eight aircraft to make four. So each, uh, each aircraft has a crew chief and it's their job to do whatever maintenance needs to be done on that aircraft. If they need help, you know, they call the maintenance platoon or the maintenance company, Delta company, and, or they can even go higher to the, uh, AVM and, uh, get them to come down and help with whatever needs to be done. But uh, as you might imagine, an aircraft as complicated as an age 64, there's probably always something that needs to be done on it. Um, so these guys, you know, when we'd come out to pre-flight, we'd pre-flight the two primary aircraft and we also pre-flight spares. 
So when we came out to do a mission, we pre-flight four aircraft. So these crew chiefs had to have four aircraft ready to fly. So if I got in the first aircraft and it broke, I would jump to the spare. And I've had it happen where we jumped to the spare and the spare would break. And by that time, the primary was fixed and we'd go back to the primary. And so you'd have to jump like three times to get off the ground, you know, and it's a big joke amongst, uh, you know, aviation is probably like a lot of other uh, things in the Army where Blackhawk guys make fun of Apache guys who make fun of Chinook guys, you know, so each aircraft all make fun of each other. Uh, so a lot of times the Apache community takes a lot of grief because the aircraft uh, is complicated and it sometimes has some maintenance issues. Uh, so it's bad enough when you're at Fort Hood, Texas, and you have a hangar that has air conditioning office and stuff like that. They work their butts off in Texas, but now you're in Iraq and it's a, it's a ramp that has steel planking and it's like 130 degrees out there on that ramp in the afternoon. And they're out there working on these helicopters and, uh, they get a break to go get some chow and come back and work. They're working like 10 hour days, sometimes more, uh, depending on what be done. And they do it every day for the whole time that we were there because the unit never stopped flying. So they never get, they've never get their due because they're out there busting their butts and, you know, we're the guys who go out and shoot up bad guys and, you know, talk to people like you on, on the podcast, but, you know, they're the guys that make sure that aircraft gets, gets up in the air. And when it comes back shot full of holes, because we were out there, we got, you know, lazy and rolled out over the target instead of breaking early. They're the ones who have to fix it. You know, and they uh, they generally don't get enough credit. Yeah, and and I think in this documentary, you really because there was quite a few uh, crew chiefs that were actually in the film talking about what was going on. I, I thought it was funny. The one guy said that it was his aircraft until you took off, and then it was yours. He relinquished it to you until you brought it back, and then when it touched the ground, it was his again. But it, it shows that there was a real pride taken in it. And like you said, where you were hopping back and forth between aircraft, there were times um, during some of the stuff that happened in the documentary where, I mean, they had to launch immediately. There was times where the pilots weren't even uh, getting clearance. They had to take off to get somewhere um, to cover someone. And so to have that ability to have those guys on the ground that are so dedicated to their job to get those aircraft ready to go at a moment's notice. I mean, it, it does kind of go, uh, you know, overlooked a lot. And it was uh, great that you guys did that. Now, I, I think part of the reason that you did the crew chief kind of section was for what happened next, where um, this was like the longest uh, thing that happened um, over there. At least it seemed to me um, about the longest kind of battle that happened. Can we, can we talk about that one a little, it's going to be the joint security station North and everything that happened with that, because 
that that seems like a disaster from the very beginning. There was a couple of things that were diverted, but it seems like a disaster from the very beginning. Well, it's in the city of Tarmia, which is a little town between Camp Taji, where we were at, and Balad, which is north of there, uh, which all of these places are north of Baghdad in, in general. So when I was over there in OIF2, Tarmia was a bad place. That's where uh, Senator uh, Tammy uh, Duckworth got shot down. You know, the, the senator, she, she lost her legs in that shoot down. Because uh, that, that town has always been bad guys. It's uh, we, everybody in our unit knew it. Um, every time you go up there, you have a good chance of getting involved in something. Um, so there's a joint security station up there because, um, first BCT, you know, well, that was our new way of doing business on the ground, you know, to get out and get more involved with the populace and, you know, counterinsurgency. So they had a joint security station. It's either co-located or near the police station. It was, it was, it was in the middle of town. And, um, uh, one morning, um, a truck loaded with explosives came in there and this guy martyred himself. And, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I forget the soldier's name. If this guy hadn't have, uh, shot the driver, they probably would have blown up the whole building. The staff sergeant, uh, staff sergeant, uh, I thought I had it written down, but it was a staff sergeant that took the shot and got him. And so the bomb goes off and it, it wounded nearly everybody in the building, but it didn't exactly take the building down. It, it damaged it significantly and it killed a couple of people. Uh, and that started the battle. Uh, these guys were, were going to try and overrun that position. Um, so one of the soldiers got up on the roof with a radio and started calling for help. Uh, First BCT, their parent organization, called one of our teams that was out in the AO. And uh, we'll find out later, just because this guy was to the west of Tarmia, that probably saved them from getting shot up right away because uh, the bad guys knew or guessed which way we would come from Camp Taji because they fully recognized that when they set off that bomb that we were going to respond. Um, so they set up a gun in the palm groves down by the Tigris, assuming that we were going to follow the river up, which uh, if I took off from Taji, that's probably the way I would have come. But uh, these guys on the team that responded were out to the West doing some, doing another mission where they just fired a hellfire into a house. Um, and they came, they responded to the troops in contact. And this, uh, this kind of goes to the fog of war that we were kind of talking about earlier about communication problems and not knowing the whole uh, situation. Because every time we come on station, um, the first thing we do is locate the friendlies because they got to know where the friendlies are and work from there to find the bad guys. If it's a troops and if it's a troops in contact. Um, so 
they were having a hard time finding obviously the guys on ground are taking a lot of fire because you could hear it on the radio uh, but they couldn't find the physical location of the bad guys. They were flying through there and actually taking fire away from the joint security station because the bad guys started shooting at the helicopter, but they really couldn't pin down uh, where the bad guys were at. And the aircraft ended up getting shot up pretty good. And... Uh, I think that at that time they started to egress back towards uh, Camp Taji uh, with some major damage to the aircraft. Um, <clears throat> Captain Hudson, the guy in, in I want to say he was in trail, uh, actually had the tail rotor controls uh, shot out and landed back at Taji with a busted up aircraft. That was one of his first uh, pilot command missions. Uh, well, I, you know, in, in, in saying this, they come under immediate fire. Um, they, the rotors hit, uh, they stay in the fight. They're shot through the cockpit. They knock out the front seat controls. Like there couldn't, you know, go more wrong with this, but it goes back to that thing that we've been talking about the whole time throughout this documentary is these guys, did not care about themselves. They cared about covering on the ground and making sure that it was, the job was done. A big point though, that they bring up that I want to ask you about was they talk about the flight to get somewhere and whether you're 25 minutes out. And they mentioned this uh, three or four times throughout the documentary, when you're out from the location and you're flying in. And I think even one of the pilots says, why do these flights take so fucking long uh, on the way there? I, I don't know if that was you. I, it was someone talking on the radio and they said that, Put us into the mindset of going there, knowing that you're this far out, knowing that uh, anything could happen while you, you could hear the gunfire and everything like that. Put us in your mindset as you're flying into these. Well, um, I can go back to the the fallen angel that I responded to. You know how you were talking about how we were hearing over the radio. Okay, there's there looks like a group of 10 guys uh, and then it becomes 20 and 30 and a hundred. And that's because it took 30 minutes to get there. And, it, and, you know, you're a human being or we're all human beings and your mind, you know, if there's unknown there, your mind fills in the blanks, right? So the longer you have to think about it, the worse, uh, the worse it becomes in your mind. You actually, it's given you time to become kind of anxious about it. Uh, we also know that like if it's a troops in contact, I want to get there as fast as I can because the odds are that as soon as I get there, they're going to, the bad guys are going to break contact. Uh, doesn't always happen that way, but that's, you know, I can't do anything until I get there and find the bad guys and then we can do something about it. So, um, I think that's driving. I, I know as one of the senior pilots in the battalion before we ever deployed, that's the thing that we would drive into the other pilots minds that our job was to get there and take care, either take out the bad guys or take care of the guys on the ground and do whatever they needed to have done for them. And, 
you know, there's no other reason for us to be flying. So the sooner I get there, the sooner I can get the bad guys taken care of. And uh, I don't think, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a little story. It has nothing to do with what was in the movie. But uh, when I came home after this deployment, I had, uh, you know, in the Army, when you get an award, it's in a little green binder. Um, I had sent some stuff to my brother's house. He lives in Fort Worth uh, in a box. And uh, when when I got there to pick it up, my aunt was there. There was, you know, we were having a family get together. So the box was sitting there on the counter and it was open. And uh, I'm doing something else, drinking a Dr. Pepper or something. And uh, my aunt picks up one of those green folders and starts reading it. And she goes, did you really do this? And I go, yeah, it's just, you know, that's the way they write those awards. Yeah, yeah, I did it. But it's kind of embellished and she, and my sister-in-law reads it and she goes you know if your parents were alive they they'd be you know worried sick that you did this and i go it's not like i thought about it you know there was right. there was a job that needed to be done and i just went and did it and and i think that goes to your question about what you know what are we thinking about i'm i'm thinking about okay when i get there you know, Leeds going to do this. I'm going to talk to the guy on the ground, find out where the bad guys are. You know, we're going to set up an orbit or we're going to set up a racetrack pattern. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. You're thinking through all the things that you're going to do to find the bad guy and take him out. There's no real thought about, hey, they could be waiting to shoot us down or something, you know, uh, you know, if there's time you look at the map and you you see you know, where the friendlies are and, you know, what, what the possible, you know, you kind of work out the situation in your mind, like what would I do if I was a bad guy or, or, but generally over there, the time that you had between getting the call and getting there, there, there wasn't a whole lot of time to think about much of anything other than, you know, just going through the, the steps of, uh, setting up an engagement or setting up, you know, what we're going to do when we get there. So which is better in your mind when you get briefed by the S three and you have a primary mission and that's what you do, or these nine one one reaction missions, I, 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 maybe you can't pick a, a better mission, but I'm saying which one I guess would flow a little better. Well, each one of those nine one ones is kind of like a pickup game. So as far as being a mental challenge, those were the, you know, right. That's where the real money was made, you know, uh, making decisions on the fly and stuff. Uh, as far as being quote easy, if, if I had a mission packet to do a route security for some, convoy going from Taji to say the green zone. That's, that's pretty easy because, okay, you just fly the route, you look along the route for bad guys, you know, and you, you clear the route. So as far as decision-making and, you know, what I'm going to do and, and stuff like that, 
the the missions that you're briefed on are far easier than uh, a pickup game. Let me ask you though, and the reason I asked that question was when you talk about being able to just fly that route, uh, look out along the route as you're doing it, and that's that's pretty much it. You see this in law enforcement. You see it in first responders. Those quote unquote ordinary or just uh, regular assignments end up turning out to be some of the worst ones. Well, I get get what you're saying because, you know, you're, you're thinking it's going to be an easy day and then all of a sudden all hell breaks loose. Right. uh, For the most part, those route security missions, uh, I, I know during OIF two, like a a convoy that was covered by us never got hit. So, and like I've been over convoys like the third time over there, I was directly over a vehicle when it hit an IED and there was nothing. We were looking right at it, never saw it. And that's probably one of the most frustrating experiences of my life. Now, you know, there's casualties down there. I'm calling medevac. There's, there's nothing I can do. I can't even find the guys who set off the IED. So, yeah, there could be a lot of mayhem and, and stuff going on, but there's, and it, it's frustrating in that there's nothing I can, I can call for help, but there's nothing really that I'm able to do for them. I mean, I feel bad because I didn't stop it. I, you know, the whole reason I'm up there is to stop them from getting attacked. <clears throat> now, you know, job satisfaction those 911 calls, if I, I, you know, we've got, we had uh, emails taped up in the talk that we got from units that we responded to a 911 call, like troops in contact that said, thanks for showing up on this day. If you guys didn't show up when you showed up, that I wouldn't be here today. So when you see something like that, you know, that reinforces why we do what we do and makes you <clears throat> it make it you know you feel like reinforced like okay that what i'm doing actually matters you know what I, what i'm doing actually saves somebody right well i want to point out one more thing on this uh the aircraft that's hurt uh excuse me the aircraft that's hit uh they have to jettison they're rocket pods. Now, what I wanted to ask you about that was it made me think back to uh, February 2nd when the pilots had talked about that they wanted to maybe land to see if the pilots were still alive, but they couldn't because there were secondary explosions of the rockets going off. Is, right. is that the time on February 2nd that kind of changed the mission mindset to where you guys started thinking about dumping rocket pods off? Now, with that whole thing, he talks about that he thinks he jettisoned too much. Um, but was that the mission that kind of set that in place? No, that didn't really. I mean, it's situational. The reason those guys punched off the rocket pods because it's on fire. Uh, uh, when they got lit up, it actually started some of the rocket motors started burning. So actually, you know, you want to get rid of it less right. the stuff start exploding on the aircraft. Um, 
I mean, it's in the 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 checklist, the the emergency procedures. You know, when that those sort of things need to take place. So, I don't. As far as that's concerned, I don't really think that that was a factor in them. You know, doing that. Yeah, I I, I wonder because when I was watching it, I saw that, and then I saw, you know I thought back to where these guys are like, well, we wanted to land, but there was lots of secondary explosions. So I didn't know if that was something that had been you know set forth where hey, if you think that you might be going down, you know, get rid of this. The last thing that I want to point out about this battle, as long as it lasted, um, just to show how much happened in it, uh, the awards for the ground units that day, uh, 10 bronze stars with V for Valor, five Archons with V for Valor, five Purple Hearts, and then the air unit, there were five air medals with V for Valor, two air medals, one broken wing, and one Purple Heart. Now, in all the awards I've ever heard of, I've never heard of a broken wing. Can you explain that one? So, you know, previously when I mentioned Captain Hudson, uh, so the Army Aviation uh, has an award called the Broken Wing Award. It's it's not something you wear on your uniform. It's uh, it's an award. Well, they give you a little little broken wing. You put it on your name tag, but uh, it's not something that's worn on your class A's. Um, it's basically you have a broke aircraft and you save the aircraft. So when Captain Hudson came back with his tail rotor controls shot up and he landed on the runway and the aircraft was, you know, the only thing wrong with it was being shot up. Uh, they put him in for the broken wing award. To be honest, he probably should have got a distinguished flying cross, but that kind of goes back to our original discussion about right. people getting the right awards and things like that. So can we talk about that for a minute? Because you've, you've brought it up, you know, two or three times at least now. Uh, why is that? Why do you think that is that people are not put in? Is it, is it just not knowing? Is it uh, ignorance is bliss? What, what seems to be the problem with putting, because on the flip side of that coin, you'll see people that don't deserve it at all being put in for stuff. Right. Well, I can only speak to stuff that I know about. And I know that our battalion, our brigade put in awards that went up to division and they would get downgraded at division. And this was, that was without discussion, without, um, you know, division, like sending something down and asking, oh, so why do you want to give this guy this, that, or it, it's kind of puzzling because, you know, there were those of us that asked, like, you know, they act like they're paying for it out of their pocket or something, you know, whereas I always understood awards were, you know, the whole Napoleon thing where he said, you know, if you give me enough ribbon and medals, I, I can take over the world. You know, because that that was him trying to say, this is why I give out awards. And But on the other hand, like, there were units, and I'm not just talking about aviation. I've heard the same story about ground guys that they're just, like, really stingy about awards. And I, like, 
you know, I've never had this conversation with the people that make those decisions to know why they made the decisions that they made. I know from being down at the, the lower end of the spectrum that, um, I would say in general, a lot of people didn't get recognized for things, you know, appropriately for things that they did. Do you think anything like that will ever change or do you think that will always be just kind of a, a rite of passage, I guess you would say? Well, you know, that's, that's kind of why I told that story about what my dad said, because, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't understand that. Like, hey, why wouldn't they award some guy who did something heroic? You know, that doesn't make any sense to me. And, you know, that's my dad was just like trying to tell me that, you know, he's not saying that Audie Murphy didn't deserve what he got. He's just saying there's a bunch of people that did things that will never be recognized. And I think that's just uh, that's the way things are. And that, that's kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to make this and. You know, I wrote a book about that deployment, too, uh, because I wanted to tell these stories. Now, you know, hopefully I do it well enough that, you know, these guys get the recognition that they deserve. But, uh, you know, I can't get them free license plates in the state of Texas. But uh, (laughs) 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 free parking at the airport. So let's talk about what the air cav means to you, because there's another mission in here, but I, I, I want to leave that for people to see when the film comes out. I want to talk about towards the end of the documentary, you guys start talking about what it means to you, what the air cav means, what that uh, history and kind of that legacy. Now you, you say uh, it's an honor and a responsibility to uphold the honor and tradition of the first cav. So what does the air cav mean to you? Well, I'm a little bit of a, I've always been into reading history and uh, military history. So I came into this assignment to the first cav, like I was in the first cav for seven years. But I came into that unit knowing a little bit about what they did in Vietnam. Uh, And that was where Army Aviation wasn't where it was born, but it was where it became the beginnings of what it is now. And uh, if you read anything about helicopter pilots in Vietnam and the kind of stuff that they did and suffered through and what, you know, the stories that we're telling pale in comparison to that. And I think we have a duty, you know, to at least try and do the kind of job that they did. Because I, you know, if you you read anything about these guys flying into hot LZs and stuff like that, and uh, that's what I mean, the honor and tradition, because those guys would go in and extract people in the hot LZs and uh, just do incredible things. Yeah. And uh, I've got a, 
I've, you know, I've got to go out there and do my mission. I've got to go out there and do my job because, you know, they're look, they're all watching us, you know? Is it, uh, is it almost like a fishbowl then? Yeah, I think, I think so. Because like, even now, like those of us who are in the unit, we're track, you know, we're watching those guys when they go out there now. You know, those of us who are retired, we talk amongst ourselves and go, hey, did you see, you know, on social media what these guys are doing, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, there's a pride, you know, in what we did. And we want those guys to remember that and, you know, make it even better. You know, it's sort of like, I think every unit in the Army, you... Uh, you want to leave it better than you found it. So I think it springs from that and it springs from, you know, our, I've never been around a group of people that, you know, that was in that unit during that deployment that cared more about doing their job and making sure, you know, that, that we carried out the mission, you know, like that. I mean, they were just, so many people that were so determined uh, to go out there and do whatever it took. And uh, Colonel Welch, one of the people that I interview in the, in the movie, he, uh, I don't think this made it into the cut, but like when we were interviewing him, he said, I go, what, what stands out about being in that unit to you? And he goes, those are some of the bravest people I've ever met in my life. And I, you know, it's just, it's just the luck of the draw because, you know, we're a lion army unit. We're, we're not the one sixtieth. We don't, we don't get to pick who comes to our unit. We just, is the random, uh, assignment of people to that unit that came together that were that, that way, you know, the personalities. Do you think you can describe that deployment? In summary, I know that's going to be hard to do, but there was a couple of guys on the the movie that said they were never the same. Uh, There were some other things, but asking you, put that deployment in your own words, in your summary, the feelings, emotions, everything tied into it. How would you describe that deployment? It was probably the most intense 15 months of my entire life. Um. And, you know, I agree with them. You know, the, the guy that says, you know, you're never the same. I don't think anybody that goes to combat is ever going to be the same. Uh, I wouldn't say that I'm suffering from PTSD or anything like that, but you're, you can't help but come back changed a little bit from the things that you see or the things that you did. Um, out of all the deployments, that was probably the hardest one that, I went on. It was just nonstop. I mean, towards the end, um, the last couple of months, it actually tapered off like enemy activity. So, and it, and it's something that gets kind of lost in the wash because that was during the surge, and uh, everybody wants to talk about how bad, you know, we lost Iraq and this, that, and the other thing. And I'm telling you. By the time the surge was over, that war was won. 
what happened after that, you know, politically and militarily, well, we were winning when I left. Um, but those 15 months is probably the hardest thing I ever did in the Army. Change anything? Would I change anything? Would you change anything? <sighs> well, obviously, if I could find a go way to go back and not get those guys shot down, that would uh, be course. something that I would do. Of course. Um, you know, it's, it's funny... Uh, when I think about, you know, when I sat down and thought about what I was going to talk about when, uh, when I got an interview for this, I always look back on these events like, okay, this is what I could have done better. This is the, I don't look at any of these things, even stuff that I got recognized for, uh, they're all flawed. And I think it's part of the process of being an aviator after every mission we do an after action review and we talk about uh, three ups and three downs. And even the, and uh, I was a flight instructor for a while and I would tell people when we get out of the simulator, I said, don't, you know, don't worry about making mistakes. It's how you take those mistakes and you fix them. Um, even the first flight, the Wright brothers crashed. So there's never been a perfect flight ever. Um, but I don't think any pilot, unless somebody's like a real uh, fixated on themselves or something, but um, we all tend to analyze stuff and think about the things we did wrong and how we could fix them. Uh, so like any of these events, like when I talked about the event on the 28th, I thought about, well, man, you, we should have shot this weapon here instead of that. And that's not what, that's not what anybody really wants to hear. Uh, but when I think about it, I think about the technical things that, that were done wrong and that I wish I'd done better. Do you think that's part of that uh, compartmentalizing that you talked about? By looking Probably. at the technical aspect of it, not not necessarily the human aspect of it. Oh yeah, I mean you could you could easily drive yourself crazy if you just thought about like you know when you look through the sight and you pull the trigger, like it's not like these F-16s dropping a bomb from twenty thousand feet. You can actually sometimes see people's expressions, you know. So. And I'm not telling something to an infantry guy who doesn't already know, but it's it's a different experience for somebody who's a pilot is, you know, to be able to, it's more personal or it can be. Right. So I can tell you this much, you know, like every, every time I shot the weapon, it was against, a, uh, I was 100% sure that that was a target that deserved uh, to be serviced. So, and you'll notice, like, I use the use these euphemistic terms uh, to express shooting people, you know, servicing the target. And then right. it's just something I think as a culture, that's, the, that's a mechanism that we use to remove ourselves from that. 
Yeah, I I uh, I agree with you. Um, let's do some of the final statistics of this unit. There were 32 combined combat engagements, 40,000 hours of support missions. Uh, there were, uh, I want to say, 1,600 troops in contact, and then uh, 400 uh, engagements that were anti-Iraq. Um, that you engaged that those are phenomenal numbers. Um, and, and when you talk about that was the hardest deployment that you did, um, the toll that it took on everyone really comes through in this film. The, the film is absolutely fantastic. I want to take a minute and show the trailer real quick, and then we'll get back. We'll kind of close this up, talk about where people can find you, how they can help out the film, and we'll go from there. So let's take a look at the trailer. By those that came before us and sacrificed their lives so that we could be here. It didn't matter if we were getting shot at or taking fire, taking direct hits. We had the opportunity to fly away when we were out of gas. Those guys are stuck there on the mission, and our job is to protect them at all costs. They trusted us. They knew that if they needed us to act, we would act. They decided to take a badly wounded aircraft back into an active ambush site to find and kill the enemy. All of a sudden, my cockpit exploded in my face. They had bullet holes in their aircraft, and there was fluid coming out, and we're still willing to get back in the fight. Pilots had bounties on their heads from Muqtada al-Sadr by name. They knew us. If it wasn't for those two, you know, I might be a bunch of ashes and some palm trees in Tarmia right now. None of those guys would tell you, yeah, I decided to do that because I wanted a medal or I'm going above and beyond the call of duty. They will tell you that they were doing their job. If they're setting up an air ambush, uh, you would think a, a aircraft would not want to go out there, but they decided that they were going to go hunting. You know, there's intense small arms fire. They have RPGs and heavy machine gun fire. And as she's telling me all this, I'm like, why are we going there then? So he's like, hey, you're Apache pilot. Which, what's your call sign? I'm like, I'm, I'm a crazy horse. Well, I was in Tarmia when you guys, you guys saved our lives. I felt like every time I crossed out into the battle space that I knew the 1st Air Cap Brigade would be there for me. I'm incredibly proud of what we did, especially given the tools that we had. Really, there's not much we won't do. If it's legal, if it's something that I'm capable of doing, I'll give it a shot. If there's stories out there about you and they're good, that's pretty hard to do. Like I told you, Dan, uh, fantastic film. You, the entire crew, did a great job. All of the heroes that were in it uh, and just these stories that take a really personal look at at not only at war but on the toll that it takes on people. Let's talk about where people can find you and what's next for you. So let's start with what's next for you. Well, um if anybody out there knows any distributors, please uh, get with us because we're, we're trying to find a distributor for the film so we can get it to places like, uh, you know, Netflix or Amazon or, you know, uh, in theaters. Um, we're looking at having a premiere uh, event sometime in February. 
in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, and we're just trying to get figure out a way to get the film out there for the most people can see it. Let's talk about your book that you wrote for a minute um, and where people can find that. Yeah. Um, the name of the book is uh, crazy horse. And right now it's being edited by Schiffer publishing. And, uh, I don't really have a date when they're going to release it, but one of these days it's, it's coming out. Uh, crazy horse, uh, was our call time during that deployment. So there's a lot of places that, uh, are on the fringe of you being, kind of discovered this story kind of being discovered if you guys want to help them out you can always go to uh the gofundme site at gofundme.com type in the search engine for the longest month movie and you can donate to there uh there's been tons of donations to it so far they've had a little trouble going back and forth with gofundme but um the the film, as of right now, is fully funded. Now you're looking for some stretch stuff to uh, help out with the production, uh, which is amazing. So once again, guys, go to the GoFundMe.com. You can put in the search engine for the longest month movie, and it will take you there. You can share. You can donate. There's a bunch of different things, and you can find out a little more about the movie. Um that's uh, about all the places right now that people are able to look at this. I can't wait until it gets out for everyone to see. Of course, they can go to YouTube, watch the trailer for it. We just showed the trailer there, but I can't wait until it gets out February. We want to be back in contact with you so that people will know when the premieres are going to be. And then always keep us updated for the book and where people will be able to get that. Guys, will if do. you... Guys, if you want more from me, you can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form at the DTD podcast. Remember, guys, the best stories are true. That's why you come here every week, because I give them to you. Make sure you go check out this film when it's available the longest month. And make sure you check out the book Crazy Horse whenever it's released. That's going to be the show for tonight, guys. That's Dan. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We're going to get out of here. We'll catch you on the next one. See you guys.